Well, the theme we sort of chose for um, this retreat was the theme of life and death. And really the way we're going to look at that is comparing two men, or really three, um, two will be in one category, but all of us uh, fit into that category, the category of life, category of death. So really what we're returning to is the gospel. And I have to say, just by way of uh, my own personal testimony, I, I appreciated the gospel when I got saved, but the longer I've been in Christ, um, I can honestly say I love the gospel. And I love the truth of what the Bible teaches, and it teaches it, I believe, in every verse of the Bible. You can find gospel truth. And so really what we're talking about is life and death, but ultimately it is the gospel. And I wanted to use just an early part of our Bible to do this. So turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, and we're going to compare two types of men, tonight and tomorrow. And just kind of the a way to start thinking about this, when you look in the mirror, other than just primping and pruning yourself, you think things about yourself. You may not be conscious that you're doing it, but you do. So when you look in the mirror, what kind of man do you see? Do you see a man looking back at you that you're kind of proud of, that maybe is a little more accomplished than others? You think about the college degrees you have or the accomplishments you've made, maybe a little bit more wonderful? Or on the other side, do you look at somebody that you just say, I know this guy looking back at me deserves the wrath of God. And that's really the delineation between the types of men. Everybody will fall into those two categories. You look in the mirror and you like what you see, or you look in the mirror and you understand your need for grace. Well, the whole point of these two messages we're going to do tonight and tomorrow is that cultural Christianity wants us to believe that there are degrees of faith. Uh, In other words, there are the super committed believers. Then there are the the nominal, not really into the faith, but I'm still a Christian uh, believers. And what they want us to believe is that um, people can sort of make their way into the kingdom by working your way, easing your way through the gate. They don't don't teach that in most churches that um, you're either in or you're out, that you're either evil or or you are in God's camp, that you are either alive or you're dead. Most churches today don't teach that. It is a gospel of slipping people in. And so we want to just kind of preach against that. Scripture doesn't show it. It shows that there is the path of the unrighteous, and there is the path of the righteous, and they're radically different, and there's really nothing in between. All that's in between is a path of the unrighteous that looks like righteousness. That's all that's in between, but it's still a path of unrighteousness. So we want to talk about two different kinds of men. Tonight, we're going to look at one kind represented by Cain. And the other kind we'll look at represented by Abel and then by his replacement, Seth. And we'll do that tomorrow. Now, the story of Cain and Abel, I love doing this because everybody's familiar with it. Matthew Henry, a couple of hundred years ago, he wrote about this story, and he said this, In this chapter we have both the world and the church in a family, a little family, in Adam's family, and a specimen given of the character and state of both in later ages, in all the ages, to the end of time. As all mankind were represented in Adam, so the great distinction of mankind into saints and sinners, godly and wicked, the children of God and the children of the wicked one, are represented in Cain and Abel, with an early instance given of the enmity which was lately put between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. That's a long way of saying that 
he's making a great point. Adam represents all of humanity. But in Cain and Abel, we represent the, the difference. We represent the, the proud versus the humble. We have the self-righteous versus the poor in the spirit. We have the rebellious against God versus the submissive to God. The self-reliant versus the dependent on God. The one who has no need for God, even when, when forgiveness is offered, contrasted with the one who has a desperate need for God. So I want to just walk through Genesis chapter 4. We'll just go through 24 verses. And the way I want to divide this up, is just look at Cain's rebellion. I want to look at God's response to rebellion, to the rebel, and then the results of Cain's rebellion. What happens as a result? Basically, all we're doing tonight is examining the first kind of man, the man who has chosen death. So let's look at Cain's rebellion first. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So is this just the story of sibling rivalry that got out of hand? I think it's more than that. Is it just a children's Bible story? This is the first struggle between the children of God and the children of the devil. And it would culminate in righteous Jesus being slain by his own brothers, by the Jews. And so really we have this little picture here. Thank you very much. Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of a Messiah in the whole Bible. God promised that there would be the seed of Satan, the offspring of Satan, and the seed of woman. The offspring of woman, there would be enmity between them. There would be war. We see this immediately lived out in Cain and Abel. Cain shows us the character of the seed of the serpent, and Abel shows us the character of the seed of the woman, very much a shadow of Christ. In fact, Hebrews 12:24 even makes a comparison between Jesus and Abel, that the blood of Christ is better than the blood of Abel. So Abel is, is presented, um, some would feel even as a type of Christ, at the very least a, a, an example. In Luke 11, 50 and 51, Jesus names Abel as the very first prophet of God to perish for the message that he preached, for, to perish for the true worship of Yahweh. So in verse 1, Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain means possession or gotten of God, something gotten by God for humanity. So Eve has placed some high hopes in him. And this is their very first birth on earth Maybe the hope is, is that he would be the prophetic seed of woman in Genesis 3.15, the one that would bring relief uh, to the world once again. Verse 2, though, then we have Abel. Now, Abel is an interesting character. In our children's Bible, if you remember your children's Bibles, and maybe you look at your own kids or you have one of your own, what do you always see in the Garden of Eden? You see, you see Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, right? 
almost certainly Abel was not the next child born. And there's a couple of ways we know this. The, the text doesn't explicitly say that Abel was directly after Cain. And also later in this chapter, Cain expresses a fear. He says, I'm afraid of the people in the world. So where do those people come from? It means that by that time, by the story of Cain and Abel, when that blooms fully, that other children have been born and they've been in there long enough, in the world long enough for another generation to start multiplying. Now, this is important because it's reasonable to make at least an educated guess that Eve had other children between Cain and Abel. Not only had she begun, begun to recognize Cain's sinfulness, he's clearly not the chosen one. I mean, he is selfish and he is, uh, denies himself nothing and he wants to keep things for himself. That character would have shown itself as a child. But most likely, I believe that Eve also began to see the character of her children. Wow, they are sinners. When I tell them to do this, they won't do it. They don't do what I tell them to do. And so she has this son and she names him Abel, which means vanity or it means um, meaninglessness or futility. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes when Solomon writes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so it's not something you would normally name a child except in response to something that you've seen. But as it would turn out, Abel was different. It wasn't that he wasn't sinful, but he recognized his need for forgiveness and for the grace of God. The text says that he was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. Now, why is Abel keeping the flocks? Well, it's only speculation, but God didn't give mankind official permission to eat animals until after the flood, until Genesis chapter 9. Many feel that Abel was acting as the priest of the family and he kept flocks primarily for the purpose of sacrifice. And I, I would agree with that. God had shown Adam and Eve that there's only one basis for communion with him. Why did God allow them to live after they sinned? Because he killed animals on their behalf instead of them. He shed blood. Abel acted as the priest. And that's not a, an unreasonable assumption to make. Jesus already said he was a prophet. He was the very first prophet. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. In the course of time, most likely what that means is that there was an appointed time. There was a regular point in time that a sacrifice would be made and worship would be given. What did Abel do? He brought a sacrifice of blood, the best of his flocks, the firstborn. And the text says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Well, what does that mean? Now, we have the benefit of the New Testament to tell us what that means. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what's the key? The very first phrase, by faith. He came by faith. For Abel, there was an internal fear of God. There was a real love for God. There was a thankfulness to God. There was also an understanding that Abel had need of God's forgiveness. Therefore, he had to continue offering these sacrifices. And then we see a contrast completely different. Verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why did God not regard Cain's offering? Some feel it was because he wasn't offering the blood sacrifice 
as Abel was. There's a lot of merit to that, and that's probably part of the equation. But we already know from scriptures what kind of sacrifices God hates. It's not just that Cain wasn't offering a blood sacrifice. What are the sacrifices that he hates? Isaiah 111. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of lambs and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Hosea 6.6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So yes, the fact that Abel brought a burnt offering of blood and Cain didn't, that's part of the equation. That's not all of it, though. Abel approached God understanding his need for salvation. Cain approached God performing a religious duty, thinking that he was doing something that was making God happy. He was really doing God a favor by presenting what he grew in the ground. Look, God, here's the stuff that I grew. This should make you happy. This is simply the first case of a man trying to please God with his good works, being religious but not having true faith. And we put it this way, God wanted spiritual fruit. He didn't want the actual fruit. He wanted Cain to be different. I think the implication is very clear too. I mean, Cain wasn't doing this by himself. It says in the text that in the course of time, Cain brought an offering. Abel also brought an offering. It's very likely they did it at the same time, on the same day. It was an appointed regular time. The implication is, is that Cain, seeing Abel, what he's doing, and understanding the, the ramifications of a blood sacrifice, just said, you know, my sin is not that big of a deal. He didn't take his sin seriously. Cain thought he was better. He thought he was different. He thought he was special. You know, I talked to a guy once about, will the Lord let you into heaven when you stand before him? And he said, yes. And I said, why? He said, because it's me. That was his answer. Because I'm special. Of course he's going to let me in. That was Cain's feeling about himself, apparently. Cain's response to God's rejection was not repentance. It was not contrition. What did he do? He got angry. He got angry with the Lord. And his face fell. Some of your versions may say his countenance fell. It means that he looked away from God. You know what Cain was doing? This is, this is unbelievable. Cain was judging how you to, are to approach God. And Cain said, I don't like what God says about how I'm to approach him. I like what I say about how I am to approach him. And I'm going to go with what I say. And now we get, for those of you evangelists in the crowd, we get the very first instance of one-on-one evangelism in the Bible. And it is God himself. He's not asking questions to find the answer. He knows the answer. He's giving Cain the chance to repent, to see the error of his ways. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When he says, if you do well, what does that mean? It means to have a repentant heart, to be humble before the Lord. I mean, basically God is saying, just do what your brother's doing. Just repent and be contrite. And he gives him two choices. Repent and have your face turned toward God in communion or reject. And he warns them, sin will attack you. Sin will attack you. And by the way, this is the very first time in all of the Bible that sin is personified, meaning it's, there's a metaphor given for sin. The metaphor is that sin is a wild animal. It's crouching at the door. 
Uh, Paul personified sin in Romans. Uh, he personified sin as a wicked king. Romans 5.21, that sin reigned in death. He personified sin as a wicked boss or a wicked master. Romans 6.6, 6, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Uh, a few verses later, that sin should no longer be master over you. In the book of Romans alone, Paul brings up sin 57 times. That's the problem. That was Cain's problem. He wouldn't acknowledge his own sin. And what, what gets me is, you know, if you've ever had a witnessing opportunity where you share the gospel and you walk away from it going, I don't think the Apostle Paul could have gotten saved with that, that presentation. It was so bad. I didn't even mention Jesus, forgot about the cross, and you messed it up completely. Then you walk away kind of dejected. Well, what about when God himself proclaims the gospel to you? And yet Cain doesn't respond. And now verse 8 is chilling. It's scary. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, what's chilling about that? This happens immediately after God warned Cain and offered forgiveness to him. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. What did he tell him? I think there's only one thing in the text that, that would indicate uh, knowing what he told him. God had just spoken to him. Cain goes to Abel to tell him something. The only viable option, I believe, is that Cain simply told him what God said. Here's what God is telling me. Here's what God is telling me the requirement is, that I need to be humble. Right then, or at least as a direct result of that conversation, why did Cain kill his brother? Why did he do it? Jesus said that Abel was a prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks the truth of God. The prophet proclaims the word of God. I believe that when Cain told Abel, can you believe what God is telling me I have to do? Abel said, he's right. You need to humble yourself. You need to come to God with contrition. You need to offer sacrifice. You need to have faith. You need to have a real faith. What you're doing is fake. It's false. It's not real. And at that moment, Cain rose up and he killed his brother because he didn't want that message and he hated the messenger. It's very likely this because Abel told Cain that God was absolutely right. That only through shed blood and a humble, contrite heart did you ever approach God. The proud unbeliever hates the righteous. They hate the righteous, especially when the idea of repentance is brought up. And it implies and, and states um, what Abel was telling Cain, basically, you're not inherently good. Don't worry about who our parents are. You have to come to God yourself. How many chances did Cain get to repent? By my count, verse 5 is one, verses 6 and 7 is another, verse 8 is a third, because Abel proclaimed the truth to him as well. He gets three chances to repent. Well, what happened then? Verse 16 tells us that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. It means that the manifested presence of God at the place designated for sacrifice, Cain no longer went there. That was Cain's rebellion. Let's kind of take a break in the narrative, and I want to talk to you about God's response to the rebel, because we're trying to make a case here that there are only two kinds of men, and they're radically different. Our worship of God stems from who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. He's worthy of our worship because he's good, because he's merciful, because he's loving, because of his blessings. But the question is, is he also worthy of our worship because of his justice, because of his wrath? Here's an odd question. When was the last time you thanked God for being a God of wrath? 
not a prayer we pray very often, or is holy, righteous indignation against sin. Psalm 150, verse 2, says this, Praise Him for His mighty deeds. The Hebrew for mighty deeds has an implication. Deeds of valor, deeds of victory, deeds of conquering. It's not just praising God because He made daisies and roses. It's praising God because He conquers His enemies. Because He issues judgment. But then the other side of that, Isaiah 48, 9 says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. We saw that in this story. Cain's bringing an unworthy sacrifice with an unworthy heart. God didn't just strike him dead. He proclaimed the gospel to him. He gave him a chance to repent. God's wrath makes him worthy of praise and the delay of his wrath makes him worthy of praise. Now we're kind of faced with a puzzle that's not completely solvable from a human standpoint. The fact that God, generally speaking, loves all men but specifically promises that not all men will be saved. John 12, 32, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Obviously, we know that not all will be saved, so we have to be more specific. The all people he's speaking of is all those he's decided to draw to himself. That's the only other option. That of all the people he's decided to draw unto himself, he will get every last one of them. So God chooses some and not others. That's a hard pill for us to swallow. Romans 9, maybe the greatest uh, passage on the sovereignty of God in the choice of some and not others. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he goes on to use the example of God making the choice to harden Pharaoh's heart in the time of Moses. And he says in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now here's the hard part. Although God in his sovereign umbrella of sovereign decision choice maker, under that umbrella, those who rebel, those who reject God, they made a conscious real choice to do it. It was something they wanted to do. Psalm 95 says, When your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. To loathe somebody means to be disgusted with, to cut off, to, to cut off your feeling for them, to abhor them. Have you ever heard this phrase? God hates the sinner. I'm sorry, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. Have you heard that phrase? I accidentally spoke truth by accident. That's not true. That's not biblical. Psalm eleven five says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and those who do injustice. That is hard for us to swallow because to hate another human being is sin. Why is it sin for us to hate another human being? Because it's hypocrisy. Because we're hating somebody for their sin when we're just as much a sinner as they are. But God's hatred is holy hatred. His loathing is based on his perfection. Like, can you imagine God telling people in hell, just so you know, I don't hate you, I just hate your sin? It doesn't make any sense at all. If the attributes of God, such as his love, which are infinite, if his love is infinite, then logically his wrath has to be infinite as well. There's not a good side and a dark side to God. I've heard God characterized that way as if all those who will be in hell someday 
are somehow representative of his failures. They're not his failures. When we say that God is good, that means that all of his attributes are good, including his hatred of the unrighteous. That that's good. Let me put it this way. If we're going to say God hates the sin, not the sinner, then logically we also have to say God loves the good works, not the Christian. That's what you have to say. Ultimately, the infinite love of God or the infinite wrath of God will be expressed in every single human being. Two kinds of men, nothing in between. So what's God's response to the rebel? It is a holy hatred that will never stop. And we don't want to denigrate God. We don't want to put him down by somehow making him softer than he portrays himself as being. We don't soften that blow. God's response to the rebel is an eternal holy hatred. Well, what happened as a result of Cain's rebellion? What were the consequences? Beginning in verse 9, back in our text, Genesis describes the godless path of an unbeliever who has rejected the way of God, an empty, dead end. Verse 9 God gives Cain two more chances. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the fourth chance to repent. Here's the fifth. Verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He still had an opportunity to repent. Five times over. And he lies to God. You know, I contrast this with his dad, with Adam, God confronted Adam with his sin. Adam repented. He is granted a substitutionary sacrifice. Chapter 3, verse 21 tells us this. Cain, though, he hardens his heart. And now God no longer speaks to Cain in love, in patience, in mercy, drawing Cain to himself, asking, what have you done? Come to me, come to me. Run from sin, run to me. Now he speaks in judgment, in separation, and in wrath. And God's tone changes. Verse 11 and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What did Cain try to offer God? The fruit of the ground, his own good works. What does God curse? The fruit of the ground. You tried to offer this to me as your own self-righteousness. I'm cursing what you grow. You will never grow anything without just extreme pain again. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, God is leaving him alive. This is not an act of mercy. This is an act to warn all men of the consequences. Cain, again, totally selfish thinking only of himself he's afraid others will kill him he knows what he did was sin and he refuses to repent did you catch that why would people why would he be afraid people are going to kill him because he knows what he did was wrong and yet he won't repent he can't claim ignorance and then in verse 16 we get a living example of what hell will be like then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. This is a living example of hell. God's first warning to men. Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord to bless him. Now obviously God is omnipresent. He's not escaping God. 
the example of hell is not that you get away from God, but the only interaction with God Cain will have for the rest of eternity will be God's presence to judge, God's presence in his wrath. He isn't escaping God, but he's leaving the place of sacrifice. He's leaving the place where he could have fellowship and communion with the Lord. Well, did the warning of Cain work? He was supposed to wander the earth and see what happens to a man who rejects the Lord. Would they take heed? Nope. You can't threaten men with banishment. They won't listen. So after the flood, God raises the stakes and now he institutes in Genesis chapter 9 capital punishment. And now he'll threaten men with their lives if they won't follow after him. Now, verse 17 is very interesting. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Cain, I think, could have still maybe repented. He could have responded to a situation with contrition, with introspection, coming back to God to humbly beg for forgiveness, but he chooses his own way. What did God tell him his curse was? You'll be a wanderer upon the earth. What does he do? He has a son, he stops, he builds a city. And he names the city after his son. This is like the guy who hears the gospel, gets momentarily convicted, then he goes about his life as if the impending reality of the judgment of God is not coming at all. Momentary conviction then moves on. Verse 18 to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. What are the family consequences for the rejection of God's mercy? Irad means fugitive, one who runs from justice. Mahujael came to mean one who is judged by God. We don't know the story, but we know it didn't go well for Mahujael. Methushael means man of God. Considering the line that he came from, my best guess is that that's a pronouncement by his father of self-righteousness. Methushael, by virtue of his son's behavior, showed no evidence of being a godly man. He had a son named Lamech. He named his son Conqueror or Killer, somebody who conquers. Verse 19, we have the first recorded instance of polygamy. And Lamech, this is Methushael's son, took two wives... The name of the one was Ada, and the other Zilla. Now, Ada means ornament. Zilla means shade or covering. The point is, is that Lamech married for lust. He didn't marry for love, and he, of course, completely snubs God's command and intent for marriage by taking two wives. He's, he is simply doing what he wants to do. Skip over to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What kind of man is Lamech? We're five generations from Cain. Is man getting any better? He threatens his wives with intimidation. He killed a man in battle. He kills a boy. He's unrepentant and boasting about it. And he says, if Cain was bad, I'm ten times worse. That's what he says. Lamech says that he'll be ten times worse than his famous, obviously famous forefather, Cain. Chapter 6, we see what happens. This anarchy-driven, 
Cainite society gets even worse. Promiscuity uh, is going on. Lust-driven men, complete utter disregard for God. And then in verse 20, you know, we have some good things in our world, some things that make life a little bit more pleasurable, and it's kind of awkward that it's the family of Cain that invented them. Verse 20 of chapter 4, says, Ada bore Jabal. He is the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now, what do we have here? Jabal. Jabal. He is the origin of nomadic herdsmen selling animals for meat. This is exactly contrary to God's command in Genesis 1.30 that what is growing in the ground is what you have for food. Jubal, he's the inventor of those who, who make music. And we think, well, how can that be bad? They're not looking for a Messiah. They're not looking for a Savior. They're making music to ease the burden of the curse, to make their life better. Tubal Cain, he makes implements that ease the burden of the curse. Remember what the curse is about. It's partly about the fact that the ground won't give you the food you need. So he makes things to ease the curse and also leads the way to metallic weaponry as well. Good things, bad focus. The Canaanites, the Canaanites, they're not looking for, they're not hoping for, they're not resting in the hope and the promise of a Messiah. They couldn't care less. They thumbed their nose at God and they became humanists. Their focus became on stuff, on power, on fame, on entertainment, on achievement, in making themselves gods. Dr. Alan Ross says this about this story. He says, so here is a picture of an affluent society defying God and his laws, seeking pleasure and self-indulgence. Into this world, Israel, and later the church, would come as a kingdom of priests to proclaim God's righteousness. So are there two kinds of men? Absolutely. There's only two. There's nothing in between. In fact, 1 John makes this abundantly clear. 1 John chapter 3, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I can't emphasize this enough. There's only two kinds of men. Those who will live forever and those who will die forever. The only two kinds. And I'm hopeful that when you look in the mirror, that that's a pride killer that that understanding is a killer of your pride. We look in the mirror and we see men who should have been Cain. But instead, the reflection we see looking back at us, according to Scripture, is the image of Christ. That he's looking back at us. He took our place so that we might be conformed to his what? To his image. Only two kinds of men, all of us were born as Cain. And by God's grace, he allowed us to become like Christ. I think there's a couple things I want to just mention that would apply this to our hearts because you know the gospel this is nothing you don't know already but i think the first thing is 
no matter how long you've been a believer, particularly as men, we are prone to pride. We're prone to thinking once I've accomplished something, once I've done this, once I've lived a while, just the fact that I'm older, that means that I should get more respect or whatnot. We, we're prone to pride. Never forget that if you were born in Genesis 4, you probably would have been Cain. That would have been you. And the second thing we want to say is on the flip side is to, to wonder, Scripture doesn't tell us, how did Abel know? How did he come to faith? How did he know, I'm a sinner, I have no right to come before God, but I will offer sacrifice? Well, from a human standpoint, the only thing we know is that Adam and Eve told him. He told him they told him about the garden. They told him about the sacrifice that had to be made to keep them alive. But the Bible never tells us why Cain was Cain and Abel was Abel. But I think the answer is real clear because God chose Abel and not Cain. And what that ought to do for us is just blow our socks off with gratitude because there's no answer for that question. The only answer we really see in Scripture to the answer of why am I Abel and not Cain, the only answer is because God chose you out of love. And that's it. It's all we have. And that question is just something that ought to haunt you. It ought to also bring gratitude to your heart. You look in the mirror, you see Cain, but you know also, by God's grace, I am able, and I am able through Christ. Well, um, tomorrow, when it's light, it's kind of appropriate we're doing death in the darkness, and we'll do light in the light tomorrow, but we'll look at Seth and how God blessed his line. We'll see the contrast. Two different kinds of men, Nobody in between. Don't let cultural Christianity lie to you. Can't do it. Let's close in prayer in a moment. And then Grant, do you have anything else to say? Where are you, Grant? I can't see a thing. Not here. There you are. Okay. You have anything else we need to do before we close? Okay. All right. We'll pray first. Thank you, Father, for this time. What a beautiful night. What a gorgeous night with the moon and the stars and these men that you love so dearly, every one of them born as a cane, and yet you chose them. And you brought them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to share in the glorious inheritance of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Abel. We love you and thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We're so thankful. I pray for the rest of our evening, Lord, that you would give us a sweet time of fellowship as we fellowship not just with the fun things of being a man, but of the eternal things of being men of God. We pray these things for Christ's sake, all for his glory. Amen.